So I learned that when I'm desperate, when I can't seem to find my way is when I get most creative. Like when I'm at the bottom feeling down, instead of being depressed for long periods of time, I just start thinking, well, what would I do in little steps to get there? I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, this show might sound a bit different today because we're skimming from three different couches. The skim is still working from home for the time being because of COVID-19. Today, Leslie Blodgett joins us on Skimmed from the Couch. She is a trailblazer of the beauty industry. Leslie founded Bare Minerals, which she grew into a global empire by tapping into the power of marketing and community. And in 2010, Shiseido acquired it for almost $2 billion. Wow. Her new best-selling book, Pretty Good Advice, gives some pretty great advice and is available now. Leslie, we're very excited to have you. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to hanging with you guys. We have been very excited to do this. We met Leslie at a conference that we were at about almost two years ago, a year and a half ago. And we didn't know who it was. Like we knew her name, but we didn't know that she was the Leslie Blodgett. We just saw this like very friendly looking woman who was wearing this very cool hat and standing outside getting coffee. And she came up to us and and you were a huge fan of the skim. And when we realized it was you, I think we both like didn't even know what to say to you. So I think it goes to show like you have such a, a friendly personality and persona that makes everyone feel very comfortable in talking to you and is also partially how you were able to talk yourself into any room in, in your early days of your career, which we're going to get into. So let's start off with our standard first question, which is skim your resume for us. All right, let's start with uh, newspaper out, McDonald's. What did you do at McDonald's? Everything. I started with like cleaning toilets and sweeping the parking lot. And then I moved up to making burgers, Big Macs. Yeah. Then FIT, Oswego, uh, two years of FIT, graduated, <laughs> interned at beauty companies, always wore eyeshadow since I'm a little kid, went to work in the industry, uh, selling makeup behind the counter, spritzing fragrance in Bloomingdale's in New York City and Macy's, met my husband at Macy's while I was working behind the counter. It's part of my resume. I know it's a career thing, but he's, he's important. Did he keep coming back or did he like ask you out on a date while you were working at the counter? All right. So I worked at Macy's and I was part-time because I was going to school and his girlfriend, his really cute girlfriend had the same shift that I did. Oh my God. So he, they lived in Brooklyn together and he would come in. So she didn't have to take the subway by herself at night. <laughs> oh. And that's how we met. Wait, I I never knew the story. Oh my god! <laughs> so he would, yeah, he would come. He was so sweet. I kept asking, "Do you have a brother or a friend?" And he did hook me up with his friend once, but that didn't work out. But it wasn't until they broke up a couple years later that he got okay. my phone number and called me. So it was, I didn't break up any relationship. Okay, that's a good story though. Okay, so keep keep going, Macy's. Macy's then got a job at. Halston or Lana, you guys probably don't know. Halston, the fashion designer, yeah. had a beauty line. I worked there for a little while. 
Then the big job was working at Max Factor. And then we were acquired by Revlon. I moved to LA. Then the company Max Factor was acquired by P&G. I moved to Hunt Valley, Maryland, Maryland, Baltimore. Had a baby in Maryland. That was the best part of Maryland. Then we moved back to LA because Keith wasn't digging Maryland so much, whatever. And then he became the stay-at-home dad. Didn't have a career anymore after that. I ended up being the breadwinner starting the minute the kid was born. And then I worked at Neutrogena and then uh, San Francisco. And here we are. What is something that people can't Google about you that we should know? All right. So here's the thing too, that I don't have a Wikipedia page. My team for years wanted me to build one, but I have this issue with being out there. So I don't know what's out there and I'm very uncomfortable with what's out there. So what would people not know about me? That I can play the harmonica and hula hoop at the same time. Did you do that growing up? Um, I hula hooped for sure. The harmonica I learned as an adult. So I have a hula hoop now as an adult that I use regularly. So then I just combined the two gifts that I have. The two. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. You write about a quote that kind of stuck out at me. The quote is get desperate. I want to dig into what that means because I think you know, when in reading about your story, like we've gotten to know you a little bit over the last year or so. And I knew the high level part of your story, but in researching for this, I don't think I really could appreciate or understood how you really got your foot in the door. And so I want to understand what get desperate meant for you. Yeah. I I think for me, I always had to work hard to get noticed in everything I did. And I think number one is my parents were divorced when I was nine and we were left with our mom. Not that that was a bad thing. It's just that she was the the strict one and the tough one. So I was always like driven to please her. And I think a lot of kids have that too. She was never quite a hundred percent happy. So I was always trying to please her. So I was always going above and beyond to get the grades and to, to get on the teams and, and that type of thing. Because I wasn't, you know, we didn't, have a ton of money growing up, I had to be creative. So by the time I went to two years of college and I, my first two years, it was rough because it was my first time being outside of my mother's like grip. So I kind of had a little bit too much fun. And when I realized that I had to get down to business, my mother helped me figure out what my passion was, which was beauty, but I couldn't get in to FIT. I couldn't get a job behind the beauty counter, which is what I needed to do to get into the cosmetic program. And I had to. So I learned that when I'm desperate, when I can't seem to find my way is when I get most creative. Like when I'm at the bottom feeling down, instead of being depressed for long periods of time, I just start thinking, well, what would I do in little steps to get there? The story I have in the book is about Bloomingdale's. I wanted to work there, really did, but they would not give me the time of day because I had no experience. I'm like, how do you have it if you don't get it? The only solution to that was to just be in their face. And I thought without being too annoying, I'm going to go to the buying office. I'm going to go there every day, every morning. I know when they come in because the first time I went and it was a very narrow hallway and I would smile and they would have to brush past me. We had to literally touch bodies for them to get by. And they just saw me every day. And I, I think, you know, persistence in that way, when you're just so dedicated to your personal cause, I had no choice but sleeping on couches, 
I didn't have a place to live. Finally, they said, you know what? Why don't you come in? We'll find you something. Were you ever embarrassed? I get embarrassed, but not about that stuff. Like when I have a conviction about something and I believe in it, I believed that I needed to do this and that they would be happy about it. Like I I was trying to explain to them from my first interview with them, you will not regret this move. So I believed in it so much it wasn't embarrassing, but I do embarrassing things all the time. I want to talk about Bare Essentials and Bare Minerals. How did you first get introduced to the company? Yeah, so the company existed as a bath and body retailer, and I was asked to come in to run it when I was 31. And what was it that stood out to them? I just had beauty experience. There was I really was not gifted in any way. Just that, again, I am a passionate person, and I didn't even know what I was capable of, seriously, And at, at that time. I just knew myself and what my beliefs were and how strong I am when I believe in something. So it, it was more, it was just like, oh, she's got beauty experience. She seems like a nice person. So it was, I came to run this company, but the bath and body business, Body Shop existed, Garnet Botanica, some of the other bath and body works, I think was coming around that time. And it just what you had to be super unique to make it or a lot of money to expand quickly. Then we changed the nature of the company completely by making it a makeup company and not a bath and body company. The makeup part I want to get to, but first I want to talk about QVC and the role community played. How did that first come to be? Yeah, so we because we were a bath and body retailer, we only made profits at the, in the fourth quarter at holiday. We sold these big gift baskets. And the rest of the year, we were losing money. So it was, I think it was my second year or third year. And it was getting to the point where, are we even going to make it? This is not, this is not working. We can't, we can't hold out that long. And they're employees and I'm the breadwinner of my family, but it wasn't just about me. Like, are we going to make it? So I'd be up in the middle of the night, like many people are when they're stressed out. And I had a lot of anxiety and I would leave bed So I went to the living room and watched TV and I watched QVC because that was the best option in the middle of the night. And I just loved that there was this live person talking about jewelry, talking to me. And it was very relaxing. And I love to shop. It wasn't anything more than the simplicity of someone talking to me through the screen, which is what we do every day right now with our devices. So it took me many, many days before I made my first purchase, but I did. They talked me into it. I bought a set of three stacking gemstone rings, which I still have today for three easy payments. And (laughs) it came in the mail. I opened it. I was like, wow, these really are beautiful gemstone rings. And then I was sold on the idea that a person can be talking to me. I can buy this product, get it delivered to my house, and have a great experience. So then it occurred to me, maybe I should try this. I can't afford models or agencies or print ads or the whole beauty industry was in uh, department stores with print advertising with gorgeous models. That was not an option. So I thought, you know what, maybe I should be the one to go on TV. Myself, never done this, not capable of this. I'm an introvert but I don't have a choice again. It was the desperation of, I need to make some sales and maybe I can. I met with the buyer five months later and I bought a five carat fake diamond ring from QVC. She didn't notice, but I was was like, yes, this woman's very successful. And she was in a good mood that day. Really comes down to how was she feeling? And she gave me a chance. I went on QVC. 
I told my personal story in six minutes of what the product that I was offering. People understood it. I think they looked at me and said, oh my gosh, she looks like a regular person, but she's really smart. She knows her stuff. She's an expert. She's a product developer. She has something new to offer. And we sold out in six minutes, more than we sold in a store. And we had a wait list. And that was the beginning. That was the turning point moment of the company that was in 1997. Do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? I am an introvert that's had to play an extrovert. I want to talk about that because I think Danielle and I relate to that a lot. One of the first things you said is like you're private and you know you don't want to be out there. But then at the same time, you went on QVC, talked about yourself for six minutes and truly like obviously changed the trajectory of your life and business, but also really set the stage of how to connect with customers. I would just want to like understand how hard that was for you and how when you balance, you know, you're so known for how you and how your company interacted with customers. And, you know, you say don't sell, serve, how you really like developed relationships well before social media enabled kind of one-to-one interactions. How did you balance doing all of that extrovert activity while being an introverted person? Yeah. So I don't think as a kid, I knew what an introvert and an extrovert was, but I got all my energy when I was alone and I was exhausted after being around people. So that's how I know now what that is. But again, I think it comes down to, I would say yes to opportunities that mattered and that I needed to do. And then afterward, after I agreed or thought about it, then it petrified me. Like, what was I thinking? Like even the night before going on QVC, I'm asking like, what was I thinking right now? But the decision, the, the impulse and the instinct is to go forward because it is the right thing to do. And then I followed my persona, the person I am would follow. And I, I think I always allowed myself, because being authentic, even though I'm not an extrovert, we all have two sides to us. Some of us might have a 10% extrovert in there. I just knew what I had to do and my, the rest of me trusted the, my judgment to do the right thing. QVC, every time I was on air for 17 years, I would still get nervous up until the very last time I did it. It was not natural to do it. But I also think that once I, the first visit, and once I went online to hear what people were saying, people appreciate that. And I knew that very early on, people appreciate when you are so yourself that that comes through, which is why I never wanted to be media trained. I never wanted anyone to tell me how I should behave that wasn't myself. And that was another lesson I learned early on was just to trust who I want to be in the world, even if it's not natural. I want to talk about the product. I got one of those holiday gift kits. I remember it really well. I remember the circles and then it had like the the filter and you would tap. And it was like the first time I used brushes that were different. And I love makeup since COVID has come to town. I don't really wear it often, but in my previous life, I love makeup. I always had fun putting it on. And when I got Bare Minerals, I remember doing the step-by-step tutorial. When you started to put that product together, what did you think was going to resonate with customers? Was it the fact that it was mineral-based? Was it the branding? How did you think about it from a product roadmap? So I, no one cared about natural makeup back in the 90s. There was very like 
small niche groups that cared, like there was a, a California contingent and people were using chemicals and bad ingredients and didn't even think twice about it. So it wasn't that I thought people would be all over that and excited about it, but I knew that it was a message that was new and it was going to be kind of hard to be the only person talking about it. We were the first mineral makeup to come out with that natural idea. The name of the product, so minerals wasn't the reason people wanted it. So the name wasn't the reason because they didn't know what minerals was. It had to be a lot of education, which is why going on QVC was so helpful because I'm in 90 million households explaining why healthy mattered. I was able to talk about why a healthy, good for you makeup matters. And that's part of, I think, why it worked is I asked them to imagine something that they, that they couldn't imagine. Imagine a makeup that's good for you. That line alone so I think language really is important and hearing it from someone who is someone that looks like you can trust this person. Imagine a makeup that's good for you. Imagine a makeup that's so pure you can sleep in it. Those ideas were not ideas that we heard in the industry. And I think that's why I believe in any industry, it's just great to learn language and how you can express yourself that makes people want to learn more about it. So I wouldn't say it was the formula at first. Let's face it, it was loose. Nobody knew how to do that. There was a lot of explaining to do. The name, nobody cared. Natural, nobody cared yet. So I, I had to use language to, to really reveal what their needs were. How did you maintain both the confidence and like the actual hold over understanding your customer so well as you scaled your team and as you got more resources? How did you maintain the, that authentic connection? Yeah. So I had zero confidence. I had low (laughs) self-esteem. I just didn't talk about it, but I definitely felt that. And if I did not have that woman who called me on the phone, when I got back to the office after my very first QVC visit, if I didn't have Maureen from Georgia calling me to ask what nail polish I was wearing to tell me that I had the online threads and the chat rooms on QVC, I don't know where I'd be today. So the confidence that I got was from the very, very early, early stages, talking to women who were interested in learning about the makeup, the early adopters who were like, what is this mineral makeup? What is it good for you? I had conversations from the beginning from women who I could call my friends. I knew their names. We were online every night, four hours a night, four hours a night for the first 10 months. And after that, I stayed, I stayed online for 10 years. When you're talking to people while you're creating something, And they're all over the country. So they have different lifestyles, different backgrounds. We all got to know each other and we literally grew, built this company together. So when new employees would come on, I would invite them in so that they can meet these people too. We had advisors that were abusers. They were our customers from the beginning. So they call that crowdsourcing now. After the first round of products, our customers told us what they wanted. And then we tested it with them and moved forward. So I wouldn't say I was this confident CEO that had a strategy. There was zero strategy. There was zero like massive plan here. It was just the one big idea going on QVC with a very unique product and then letting... In the book, I talk about trusting the river. It's like, let's get on this ride together and see where it takes us. Our competition wasn't following us. Nobody knew what we were doing. There's a lot of power in doing this 
in your own space without being attacked and, you know. You write about leading with laughter. You went through an IBO process and a sale. There had to be a lot of stress. How did you come up with kind of that leadership ethos? Where did that come from? Well, it, it's funny. Let's talk about the IPO for, uh, no, the sale to Shiseido. Uh, the CEO came out to, when we announced it to the company and he didn't speak English and I didn't speak Japanese. But when he came to our all hands meeting for the announcement, I had him wear a t-shirt that said, I'm an original, which was our, so he had to change out of his gorgeous suit into a t-shirt and we all left. I mean, everyone, and it was an uncomfortable thing for him to do, but he did it because he was that giving. So we had a laughing moment from that day. It was very, very stressful. Every time uh, we launched a new product or IPO's earnings calls, hated them. But levity is what keeps people connected. Humor was always in my work life, even before I was running a company. Even when I worked at companies, I would be the one. And I'm not a funny person. I just like to laugh. I just like, I know the health benefits of laughter. And again, from my childhood, just having that stressful divorce and all the issues there, it was always laughing that got me out of it. So I knew the power of that medicine. And I also know that people who have fun together like to stay together. So there's a loyalty involved when you're having some kind of fun. We made sure that there was some release. I do believe laughter is a release and it's a it's a connection point. It also puts us on a level playing field as well. So it wasn't fun and games. I mean, we were a super competitive group. We just knew that when we would start a meeting, we would try and bring some lightness to our play. And you know, we had our, our dances at two o'clock in the afternoon. I would send an email to the company, the hundreds of people, let's meet in the lobby without shoes on. We would play a couple songs. We would just dance, no talking, go back to work just to release. Just the idea that we could do a couple dances mm-hmm. and never have to talk. Mm-hmm. That, that's what I mean by levity. It's just re- release and relief. I and- think our team would like cry if they had to dance with me and Danielle. <laughs> <laughs> They've seen us dance. <laughs> you talk a lot about laughter and having fun with people. I think one of the things that we've both been most taken with by you is what a strong kind of support system you've surrounded yourself with. You talk a lot about like your girlfriends, especially. It's a great thing to hear about when you hear and see people reach such levels of success around like actually how they just kind of rely on their friends and keep business out of it. And I would love just to kind of hear you talk about it. Yes. Thank you for bringing this up. I was so crazy with my career and then raising a kid and traveling a lot that I didn't really make time for real friendships. And when I moved, it wasn't great. I didn't bring friends with me. So I didn't keep in touch in that way. So it was kind of sad. By the time I was over 50, I realized I didn't have close-knit friendships. I had acquaintances. So it was Jennifer Ocker, who you guys met at that same Mm -hmm. conference, who is a Stanford professor, um, and she, her mother had this bridge group started 50 years ago where they actually played bridge, but they were, they were all moms, and they'd get together several times a year, and they're still together 50 years from now. She's like, I want to build out a bridge group, but we don't have to play bridge. But there are a lot of bridges in the Bay Area that we have to drive over. So there are 10 of us, and we operationalize this idea. We're all working women. Most of us have kids. We have very busy lives, but we also know that we need 
people we can trust in this space that with unconditional love and non-judgment and no FOMO. And we basically have a couple times a year where we show up with agenda. What are our goals for the year? We talk about what we did last year. Did we reach our goals? How can we help each other? We have a WhatsApp thread. We're on every day to help each other through the hard stuff and the happy moments. We have like a a mission statement. (laughs) It's like bring a lot of important executives together and they're going to really operationalize it. They're going to hang out, but with a mission statement. Yeah. Going to drink wine, but we have OKRs. (laughs) Drink a lot. We have a disco ball. We have one like overnight retreat in Bodega Bay at one of the uh, gals' houses. We do get drunk. (laughs) But but mostly, <laughs> but mostly we're having discussions and we're laughing. A lot of it is laughter. We're, it's just a, a really safe space where I think the non-judgment is a huge, huge part of it. Mm-hmm. And we don't bring any of our baggage with us. So we lift each other up and we're honest. I wish I had this when I was younger, but I am just so grateful that I figured this out. You don't think that when you're over a certain age, you can find deep friendships with people mm-hmm. who you have something in common with. So it's been incredible. I love that. We're going to go to our last round, our lightning round. Morning person or night owl? Morning person. I could have guessed that one. What is the last show you binge watched? Dead to Me. Oh, I love that show. Wine or tequila? Tequila. Lemon or lime? Lemon. If someone was going to play you in a movie, who would it be? Julia Louise Dreyfus. Oh, good one. When's the last time you negotiated for yourself? Two days ago. What did you negotiate? So I'm talking to a firm, a pub, a publicist, because I never hired one for the book. So I'm negotiating what, I'm, what I am willing to do and not willing to do. Like we're making a deal right now. Shameless plug. Oh, what does that even mean? Plug your book. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, It's pretty good advice. Who doesn't need it? (laughs) Final question. Who is someone we should have on the show? Uh, Dr. Jennifer Ocker. Okay. Leslie, thank you so much. It's so good to see you. Oh, thank you guys. Hi, everyone. We're trying something new. During this time of economic uncertainty, we want to take a moment to spotlight some new female-founded companies. We've heard from many incredible skimmers who are leading small businesses, and we will be introducing them to you each week on Skim from the Couch. See the link in our episode description for how to submit yourself or a friend. Hi, everybody. My name is Casey Benjamin, and I am the co-founder of Juju Supply. Juju Supply is an intentional jewelry brand. Um, I founded the business about five years ago after a second bout with cancer. I'm a two-time cancer survivor. And the idea is to wear jewelry that means something, that has symbolism, and that is reflective of where you want to go, what you've been through, or maybe what you're aspiring to become in the future. So it's very symbolic and meaningful jewelry, and you're meant to really wear things that tell your story and reflect your journey. So our business is primarily online. We are in some stores, but I would say the majority of our business takes place online and the majority of people find us through Instagram. So we have a really strong Instagram following. And like I mentioned, the idea behind the brand is to wear something with meaning. And I think what COVID has done to 
the shopper is that it's really people have been looking to buy things that are more symbolic and carry more meaning. And I also think because people are separated from their loved ones and people are all over the country and not able to hug and hang out and touch that they've wanted to send something to somebody that has more meaning behind it. So we've seen a real uptick in sales. What I've seen is a tremendous uptick in people wanting thoughtful kind of notes included with their packages that say things like, you know, instead of instead of showing up for your birthday and hugging you in person, I'm sending you this, you know, symbolic um, charm that, you know, instead of kind of being there in person. So we've seen a real uptick in sales and in people wanting to kind of give this kind of gift to somebody and, and long distance and a way to sort of connect long distance through the brand. We are on the internet. <laughs> Um, at jujusupply.com. That's J-U-J-U supply.com. We're also on Instagram. We're at juju supply. And the juju it comes from the expression good juju. So all of our jewelry has good juju behind it. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 